today on Ag News Daily. Thing there is to know about beef production and it becomes so sustainable using every you know resource we can and more efficiently for those big outcomes of sustainability. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here, co-host of the Ag News Daily Podcast, joined today by other co-host and now political correspondent, Delaney Howell. Delaney, how you doing? I'm good. I've always been a political correspondent for the podcast. Okay. All right. Sure. But now you've actually been to a presidential campaign thing. How'd it go? It was um, not what I expected. And I have been to some before. I remember going to Hillary Clinton's when she ran back in whatever, 2012. Okay. Um, But it was, so yesterday's event was supposed to be a Joe Biden event, which was, which I was covering for AgriPulse. It was at a health facility in Lamar's, Iowa, which is of course a pretty rural area in Iowa up on highway 20 northwest ish corner, North central corner. Northwest buddy. That is Northwest Iowa. Well, anyways, it, it, he was supposed to be talking about rural healthcare and launching his rural healthcare plan for if he was to be elected president. And of course, as we know, and we've talked about on the podcast, that is a huge issue for a lot of folks in rural America who farm or don't have off-the-farm jobs and have to buy independent health care insurance. And he spent little to no time discussing any of that stuff. And he was also like two hours late, which, you know. That's always fun. Yeah, yeah. So what was the highlight? What did he talk about if it wasn't uh, rural health care? Well, he did talk about healthcare like as a whole, but he just didn't really relate it back to rural America. Like, you know, some of the the questions or the points made were some of these folks have to drive an hour and a half, 2 hours away to access good healthcare, you know, like what would you do to change mm-hmm. that? And he spent a lot of time instead talking about how he would basically change Obamacare and make it better and do this and that and not put everybody on Medicare plan and Make sure your deductible out-of-pocket costs was only going to be at most $1,500. Just a lot of stuff that it's going to take a lot of hoops to even get to that point. So I don't know why you're making those promises now. Gotcha. Gotcha. Typical uh, political stuff. Typical political stuff. All right. Well, that's good to hear. You know, Delaney, we've got some good news here in the Grinnell area, east central Iowa. We got rain. Yes, we got a lot of rain. Yeah, I, I you know don't have a uh, a rain gauge anymore. One of the storms earlier this spring ripped it off and blew it away. But yeah, decent uh, decent amount of rainfall, which we needed. So the drought of nineteen has come to an end, at least in our part of the yes, country. Yes, that is true. Actually, okay, because we were just talking about rural health care, I should have sold this piece of news in there with it. But we are seeing a bipartisan group of Republican and Democratic. House committee members are forming a task force just to focus specifically on rural health care policy. And this is, you know, unusual that we're seeing both parties come together, but the House Ways and Means Task Force will hold its first hearing to discuss what they find on July 25th. And I think it's, you know, they're finally addressing and they said that there is no question our our country is facing a serious crisis in ensuring that rural Americans have the same access to quality care and medical services as their urban and suburban counterparts. So I think they're right, so this is a good thing. It is a good thing. 
Hmm. All right. Well, Delaney, I'm sorry I stepped on your transition, and then you stepped on my transition, which was weather-related. Oh, okay. But uh, jumping back, while we're, you know, we, we got the rainfall, end of the drought, blah, 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 we have a report out of India. So here is some uh, interesting ag news that has not been on my radar at all. But um, we have been seeing erratic weather uh, for the past year in India, and that has caused the the spice cardamom to explode in price. It's up about 400% on the year for uh, for cardamom uh, in the markets. And are you familiar with cardamom? Do you use it in anything? No, I was just going to ask you. I don't even know what you use that spice for. You know, I've seen it on boxes, but mm. I'm not sure they uh, – the article, so it's Reuters talking about this, talks about how in India, uh, this time of year, Hindus flock to a temple in southern India to uh, pay tribute to the patron deity of the state and to pick up sweets that are called Tirupati Ladu. And uh, those sweets are made with cardamom. And so this temple buys all of this cardamom. They bought 120 tons of cardamom last year and again this year. Typically, they spend 1,600 rupees or about 23 bucks per kilogram on the stuff. And this month, they paid 4,400 rupees per kilogram. So, you know, three and a half times more expensive this year. And this is because of the massive rains that went through India last year and destroyed the farmlands in places where this cardamom is grown. And it's it's like a pod type of thing. And uh, and then this year they didn't get the rain. And that's kind of wiped off the rest of production. Can you spell that for me? Absolutely. C-A-R-D-A-M-O-M. C-A-R-D-M-O-M. C-A-R-D-A-M-O-M. I got it. I just was going to... I was just going to Google it. Yeah, I have seen this in the stores now, too, that I'm looking at it. Yeah, they call it the Queen of Spices. Okay. Listeners, if you have any good cardamom recipes, (laughs) post it to our Facebook or Twitter. Obviously not going to make them this year if prices have exploded, but uh, I'd be very interested in trying it. Yeah, I would, too. I don't really love a lot of Indian food, but I've I've had some. And this is a sweet. I don't know. Yeah, it might be good. You never know. Yeah, exactly. We're all about trying new things and broadening our horizons. Mm-hmm. Well, when, one group of people that's not excited about broadening their horizons are those folks over at ERS or NIFA that are not excited about moving to Kansas City uh, from the relocation that Secretary Purdue has put into action. It sounds like, according to the USDA, Only 72 ERS employees accepted to move by Monday's deadline. They received 99 declinations saying they will not move and a number of employees who just didn't respond. And Hmm. for the NIFA, 73 accepted, 151 declined, and then the rest are just in a position where they're like, eh, I don't know yet. But Democratic House and Senate members on Tuesday sent a letter to Secretary Purdue criticizing his plan, asking him what his new plan was, how is he going to implement this deadline, because I think folks are supposed to start moving here within the next two weeks and have to be there actually by September 30th. Sounds like a lot of folks are upset. They did kind of like a review period, and the the reviews showed that most people don't want to move, etc., etc. We 
and and basically it sounds like USDA just dis- disregarded that survey done or that uh, that research done. Sure, sure. You know, I've seen a lot of conversation on Twitter about this move of uh, of ERS and the others. And, you know, they, they say this was done to cut costs. Obviously, like you say, a number of workers aren't making the move. So they're, they're losing some senior leadership. They're losing some of their researchers. But at the same time, I, I got to believe that they're going to be able to find new yeah. and competent folks in Kansas City. I mean, we do research out here in flyover country. We're not all just bumpkins. We know <laughs> how to do the math and the sciences. We can find people to fill these roles who choose to stay in a more affordable place to live like mm-hmm. KC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm kind of I'm torn on this deal. Yeah, it's been interesting to watch, though, that's for sure. Yeah, it is. Um, Speaking of being torn on some deal, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, said that the U.S. dollar was overvalued by 6 to 12 percent, and they're looking at near-term fundamentals. And uh, then they say the euro, the yen, and China's yuan were broadly in line with fundamentals. And um, this was interesting because this kind of coincides with what President Trump has been saying about uh, needing to bring the dollar back down. As agriculture is an exporting industry, a cheaper dollar tends to be beneficial for, uh, for the industry. But the IMF really doesn't like President Trump. For other reasons, namely uh, his overuse of tariffs. And uh, so the report goes on. They talk about how uh, President Trump's use of tariffs is causing massive trade distortions. It is changing the way that uh, – let me see here. It is it is changing the way that uh, – that countries have been working to revive liberal, liberalization efforts, and they should be strengthening the rule-based multilateral trading system that has been effect, in effect for the past 75 years, looking at the IMF and the WTO rather than tit-for-tat tariffs. So IMF uh, on board with Trump in one hand and uh, quite opposed to him in another. Yes, and speaking of trade negotiations or tariffs, really, we've got some more trade negotiations going on this week. Uh, U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer has been continuing negotiations with China. He also is going to be meeting with key Democrat and Republican House members later this week to discuss their concerns about getting USMCA passed. And we also had some news that it sounds like U.S. and Japanese officials are also working on negotiating a limited trade deal focused specifically on agriculture and automotives. They're hoping, actually, for a handshake between President Trump and Prime Minister Shinzo Abe at the G7 meeting in France, which is happening in late August. All right, so that would be nice. That would be nice. It would be nice to get some agricultural products sent out. Yeah, you know, it would be great to at least get you know, the Japanese part of the TPP back in play or at least back under mm-hmm. discussion and uh, pick up some of those things that uh, agriculture didn't get to grab a hold on when we uh, jettisoned that uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership. Yes. Well, we won't be re-entering the TPP, but no. just... But Japan was our main trading right. partner in Absolutely. the TPP. So yep. that was yep. the one we, we really stood to gain a lot by reducing some tariffs and uh, mm-hmm. other non-trade barriers. Especially on U.S. beef. It's a big one there. Right. So. Right. But they're making progress. They're making strides. Yes, they are. Well, speaking of not making strides, we had stocks down early today as results from CSX, the railroad company, were out. And uh, they were way down. 
versus expectations. The shares of CSX tumbled 10.7%, their biggest one-day drop in almost 17 years, because they cut uh, their full-year revenue forecast and lowered their quarterly profits. And Delaney, do you know why a railroad stock is down so much? Because of weather or flooding? trade. Mm. We're not shipping as much to China, be it agricultural products or manufactured products. And that's what CSX does is haul stuff from the middle of the country to the coasts. And they just said, business isn't there. Well, I mean, that I don't think comes as any surprise to anyone anyways. So no, well, it, it did on the in the market today. I yeah. don't think people were expecting it to be down so far. Okay. Well, I have just one other quick piece of news before I'll let you turn it over to the markets, Mike. Just a quick update. Yesterday, we talked a little bit about how they're trying to reform the H-2A visa worker program. I thought this was an interesting stat, a couple of interesting stats here. Um, essentially, they're trying to streamline the application process, which I talked a little bit about yesterday, but they're trying to eliminate what's known as the 50% rule. This 50% rule requires farms to hire domestic workers if they apply within the first half of the season and the Labor Department would plan to cut that down to just 30 days because farm worker advocates have said that it will make it a lot easier for farms to avoid hiring domestic labor and that most of the time they get domestic labor and then that person doesn't show up for work or they decide, eh, I don't really want to do the work for it, etc. But I thought this other little piece of, of uh, news was interesting related to that. They did a survey or California Farm Bureau did a survey, which, you know, is a typically a state we think of to use a lot of H-2A visa workers because they've got a lot of fruit and vegetable produce going on out there. They said only about 6% of members that they surveyed earlier this year used the H-2A program to address their employee shortage programs. Huh. That seems like a very small number. Uh, that's what I thought, too. Yeah. But if those 8% were very big producers, that could be a lot right. of H-2A visas. That is, yeah. For a small number of, of growers, I suppose. Yep, we don't know that part, so. Interesting. Well, Blaney, I'm glad you brought that up. Keep an eye on that program. It does sound like we're going to see some changes. It does. All right, well, speaking of changes, prices change every day. Should we look at where they closed for the day? Let's do it, Mike. All right, folks, and our markets are brought to us by our friends at Zaner. Remember, we continue to see volatile periods here in the market. We still have great opportunities to manage some of that market risk. Give us a call at Zaner by reaching us at 312-277-0050 or the web at Zaner, Z-A-N-E-R dot com. And, of course, mention you heard it on Ag News Daily. We've got uh, green in the corn, red pretty much everywhere else today. September corn was up three quarters of a cent at 4.36 even. The December contract was up a quarter to finish the day at 4.41 and a half. In soybeans, the August contract was down five and a quarter at 8.84, excuse me, 8.82 and a half. The November contract down five and a half to finish the day at $9 and a half. In Chicago wheat, the September contract was down two cents at 5.05 and a half. December also dropped two to finish the day at 5.17 and a quarter. Looking over at the world of uh, livestock, we've got weakness in the cattle complex and hogs are the big gainer on the day. In live cattle, the August was down 10 cents at 108.1250. The October down 50 cents, closed at 108.75. 
In feeder cattle, the August was down 47 and a half, finished at 140.57.50. September down a dollar 10 on the day, closed at 140.77 and a half. And in lean hogs, almost limit up in that August contract, up $2.95, closed at $82 even. The October up 252 and a half to finish at 77.82.50. And some green in the dairy industry today. As we take a look at class three milk, the July contract was unchanged at 17.31. However, the August was up 17 cents, wrapping the day at 1767. For our conversation today, we are going to talk to Roxy Beck with the Center for Food Integrity about just what it is exactly the center does. Well, folks, I'm very excited today. I'm up here at the South Dakota Governor's Agriculture Summit. And yesterday, we talked numbers. We talked stuff that matters to farmers' bottom lines. Today, we're going above and beyond. And we're talking about how farmers build and maintain relationships in the public eye. And to help us get a handle on that today, we heard from the fantastic Roxy Beck, who is with the Center for Food Integrity. And Roxy, thanks so much for taking the time to share your research. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about what is CFI to kick things off. Center for Food Integrity, we're a nonprofit organization. We work across 200 different members and project supporters to have one mission, uh, which is to earn consumer trust and confidence across the full food system. Why? I mean, who cares? They got to eat. They're going to eat what we give them, right? Uh, Maybe. They, They might question it throughout the process, and we think that there's... Enough challenge that's involved in that, but there's great opportunity. Um, Ten years ago, 11 years ago, when the center was established, we knew that the opportunity was to earn trust. Because if we can have trust, we ultimately can earn and maintain a social license, which gives us to not only be in compliance with rules and regulations, but also bring the products to market that we're interested in bringing to market. Be sitting in a sector of agriculture that suits our needs and our desires and our passions, as well as brings really high quality product to consumers who are asking for it. So what does what does consumer research look like? Bring bring me up to speed. I, I'm well, talking to consumers. That's that's hard. Yes. So it, what do you guys do? It's changed dramatically, um, even in the, the 10, 11 years that we've been doing this from a lot of we, we do qualitative. So a, a really good amount of insights. We get to ask a lot of questions and follow up questions, understand why these things are on their minds. And then we take that information and develop what we call quantitative research, which helps us look at lot, masses of people and ask them specific questions based on the indications that were formed from the qualitative. We also do humans on the street type of research that's very one-to-one, this uh, case study of one and very anecdotal, but all of that feeds into our understanding of why people have the perceptions and the beliefs that they do about the food system. And what I would say, the caution um, that I would give everyone is let's not assume we know why people are making the decisions that they're making or asking for the food products. One of the topics that came up today was this idea of what I'll say alternate proteins or alternate sources of uh, great calcium. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to avoid. Fake meats and nut juice. I, yeah, I wasn't going to say it. Right? <laughs> um, there's so much interest in this, and there are a couple really obvious sides of the fence. Those who've spent their life dedicated to the production of milk from the, you know, in the dairy mm-hmm. industry, those who have been, you know, cow-calf operators and know everything there is to know about beef production and have become so sustainable using every, you know, resource we can more efficiently for those big outcomes of, of sustainability. And we feel a great amount of defense 
and concern as to why people would be opting out of our incredible protein sources, why they would question the intent of the American farmer. Um, so all of that is completely understandable. And what I would say on the other side of the fence is for these companies that are seeing innovation and technology and opportunity in this protein space, um, the consumers are right in the middle. And they are um, sitting, I, I think agriculture oftentimes, we, we see groups that are alternate proteins and we say, they're trying to dupe consumers. They're trying to tell them there's something that they're clearly not. Meat comes from an animal, mm -hmm. right? And obviously these burgers, these, you know, alternative, alternative uh, milk, uh, ju you know, liquids, <laughs> beverages, <laughs> um, beverages yeah. thank you, um, aren't our product. And so when they use our name, that makes us feel defensive. It, it questions everything that we thought we understood about food. And what I would say is let's pause for a second because people are very curious and these alternatives are very much weird science right? There's people want to opt into, they want to taste test, they're curious. And we saw this through the, the debate that's taken place or the conversation that's taken place over the last 20 years on GMOs. People don't say, I want GMOs labeled because I don't think they're safe. Of course, there's a percentage of the population, about 22% of the population says, I don't think they're safe. So I want to know where they are so that I can, I can make that decision. Uh, when I see that and, and perhaps opt out of it. But the far greater percentage of, of people, 72% of the people that we, we asked, uh, do you want GMOs labeled, said, yes, I do. And then we asked the follow-up question, which is where the real magic happens. Of those, a phenomenal amount of that group of people that said, give me the label, was because they were curious, because they believed it was a consumer's right to know, and because they support transparency and labeling. And it's None. tough to argue with those. Absolutely. I, I we mean, want that. Yes. We want that in our products. We participate in industries every single day that we don't know enough about. And we feel like if maybe if we had a little bit more information, we'd be better equipped. Maybe it's textiles. Maybe it's something that comes from the mining or forestry industries or something like that. The fuel industry. We make decisions every day that we don't know a lot about. And consumers, if they are given the opportunity to get more information and it serves their curiosity or it serves their um, opportunity to feel like somebody is willing to tell them more, they're going to be in favor of that. So I've got a question for you, and I imagine you've probably come across these people. I've talked to a lot of growers who hear about alternative meats, uh, alternative proteins, and it's weird science. And then these are the same growers who have also had to deal with the skepticism of GMOs. Okay. And from their perspective, it certainly seems as though it's the same, quote, type of consumer that's concerned about GMOs and yet excited about these alternate meat products. Yeah. Is that really the case or are... Are we conflating two very separate classes of consumer and just lumping them all together because it's convenient and they're obviously hypocrites and well, why do we care? So what I would say that the, the common denominator is transparency in all of this. If I look at the companies that have said, we don't want to disclose this for any reason, slippery slope, we don't apply the rule, you know, uh, equally across, you know, cheeses and, and uh, wine doesn't have to have it, but any tortilla does. You know, when, when I look at all the reasons that I get concerned about um, the, the labeling that would come in and what that would mean for any product that contains a GMO, consumers go, you tell us how proud of this technology you are. You talk about how much investment, R&D, you talk about the years of, of testing you've gone through. Why in the world aren't you screaming from the mountaintops the amount of pride you have attached to that technology that's in our food? 
you're telling us you don't want to disclose it? Now shift to the beyond side, the, the alternative side. What are they doing? Shouting they are about say, it. They're saying from the mountaintops, we have innovated. We have created something that is so familiar to you and nothing like what you expect, right? They've said, come in, look at our labs. They've invited in media. They've talked about ingredients. They've, man, they've gone IPO, right? Right. They, they have involved people from the beginning and said, don't only, you know, don't, don't just, you know, come to the front door and talk, come in the house, search around, open the drawers, right? Whereas, industry, it could be seen as said, it's none of your business. Everything inside this house is fine, but you stay at the street. So, I mean, it sounds as though we are off on the back foot. We've been on the back foot on the GMO issue for 20 some years. Um, what are the issues in your mind today that you see the opportunity for agriculture or for the industry to be out in front and kind of embrace that sort of transparency for conventional ag, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's meat production or, or milk production or, or whatever, where are we, where do we still have some opportunity to get out in front of stuff? Yeah. One of the areas that I'm seeing some churn and some bubbling up right now is on, I'll just classify as chemicals, whether this is ingredients people can't pronounce or don't understand, they're seen as artificial or on, on the more input side of things. GMOs could be classified, gene editing could be, you know, it's not, it's not a chemical, but it could be perceived as that. And then probably the biggest category would be that of the pesticides grouping, pesticides, fungicide, you know, anything within that class that says we are purposefully putting on, you know, a product that from our perspective is designed to protect and serve a very specific function that other people go, yeah, but you're talking about toxicity levels. And I'm not sure I can couple safety and toxicity and understand what that means when I don't have um, a scientific understanding. Um, so I think those are some of the areas to say, when, when you think about pesticides, you know, what are they and are they even necessary? If you get that question, help yourself come up with an analogy. Um, I was just in Hawaii with a bunch of um, growers and, and people involved in, in agriculture. And they said, here, we have a phenomenal termite problem. So when people ask me about what do I do and our business is connected to, you know, pesticides, I kind of reframe it and I say, hey, where do you live? And they tell me, though, they're, they're in this, you know, house in this neighborhood. And, hey, you know how you use those pesticides to keep away termites because that's a protection for your home. And if without it, you don't have a home. Yeah. Um, we we actually apply that same type of protection within, you know, our, our products in the field. Um, we p- apply exactly the amount we need that can be leveraged by the plant, no more, no less, and we do it in the right time frame. And, and the, the outcome of that conversation is very different when you position it in a way of storytelling and making it specific and relevant to the person you're talking to versus just saying, well, a pesticide is something that's going to kill off something we don't want. And of course it's necessary. It, it helps our bottom line. You idiot. Right. Cause that's right. the, that's the implication. <laughs> right. A lot of times when you give that response is you're so stupid. Right. Why would you ask such a stupid right. question when they're just completely disconnected? Yeah. Absolutely. Interesting. So now when you look out ahead, you shared a lot of statistics based on the research you have done. What have been some of the issues that you've seen markedly change in the, the 11, 12 years that you've been doing this research? What are the issues that consumers are either getting more aware of and becoming more concerned about? Or are there anything that they've 
we're concerned about that now they're just kind of cool with. Yeah. So a couple things. Um, the, the biggest shift that I've seen is on this idea of sustainability, and I'll frame it that way. But the way that the, the question was asked is um, level of concern about climate change over time. So there's about a 10% shift in people saying, I have a high level of concern or I'm strongly concerned about this idea of what's going on with our climate. And there's opportunity in that because within agriculture, think of everything that we've done, um, whether in the name of productivity, efficiency, all of those things that actually fully support sustainability. And we have an opportunity to tell that story about all the sectors of agriculture and all the advancements that have made, been made over you know decades that have supported the idea of sustainability because that is the outcome or the, the lack of sustainability can be attributed to climate change and, and what's going on in production, one of the pieces of it. Um, another place where, you know, some of the non-issues, I, I am hearing largely that, you know, the, the GMO debate is kind of over, right? I, I think once there's an established, um, you know, the, the government is involved and it's, you know, this will be labeled and we just have to figure out how, it's kind of like the, the activists, the advocates, however you see that, the crowd right. that's saying we want, we want this to move forward, that's kind of taken them off of um, the front of their toes, put them back on their heels because now their issue is being addressed. Um, and, and, and the other thing that I think, you know, bubbles up and kind of changes based on the, the groups you're talking to, um, whether it's chemicals in food or ingredients, you know, it's, it's what's going into my food, people by and large want healthy, affordable options, period. So companies that are able to say that, people within the industry who are able to say, we're not only focused on, you know, food as medicine and how it it, it impacts our life positively because nutrition equals, you know, really Health. contributing, yeah, contributing yeah. citizens right. in some way. When we can support that and provide a sustainable, um, affordable, um, and a, abundantly available food supply that employs choice for our consumers, they can get behind that. Fascinating. Rox, I've got one final question for you. The last year and a half, we have seen a lot of, I'll call them mainstream journalists, non-agriculture journalists have been piqued by, whether it's trade war or it is the alternative proteins, there's been a lot more interest in the world of agriculture from folks who don't have the background that we're used to dealing with. How can growers, leaders who get called on these issues, relate to journalists who are going to be magnifying this story tenfold? What would be your kind of top three tips for folks to really make the most of that kind of conversation? Because I have seen some, I don't want to call them embarrassing interviews, but sound bites that maybe didn't present the industry in the best light. How do we avoid that? Yeah. First and foremost, consider the audience. The reporter is not your uh, not your audience. It's the conduit to those who are listening. So understand. Try to take off your hat, everything you know, um, and put on the hat of the person who's listening to you. Do they understand the jargon? If they don't, don't use it. Simple is best. Um, make sure you're not repeating negative language. As we have opportunities with with the media, um, most of the time people don't ever ask, uh, don't ever hear the question that's asked by the journalist, uh, which might be fueled in interesting ways to get a specific response, um, or maybe not. Maybe they just don't know, and they're just repeating what they've what they've heard sure. or what's been asked of them. So we need to not be defensive, but we need to position it in a way where it says, if, if we're being asked about something like you know pesticides, let's say. So, so what I think you're really talking about is how do we build a sustainable food supply that not only protects crops, but also ensures food safety. What I'd love for you to know is, and then insert a couple points, we don't have to talk about the most controversial things in the way that 
they become controversial. Sure. We can do that in a way that actually supports our value system, what we are committed to as a farming population, mm -hmm. as everybody involved in, in food and farming, um, as well as the outcomes of that process. Um, and then the last thing I would say, and, and we teach this approach, there's a very simple, I say simple in, in uh, concept and not as easy in practice, but three-step process that we have to consider. And the very first step in that is listen without judgment. So whether that is sitting across the table, you know, from a member of media, whether that is talking across the fence with the neighbor, whether it's sitting in a local board, you know, community meeting, boardroom, whatever, um, or a perfect stranger on a plane, mm -hmm. take the opportunity to stop and realize that the perceptions they are dealing with is the reality they're making decisions based upon. And that doesn't mean that you have to be resigned you know, to, to their reality, but it does help us understand if we can say, that's really interesting viewpoint. And maybe you've heard it before, or maybe you haven't, but just saying that, gosh, I hadn't heard that before. Where did you hear that? Where did you read that? You start to understand so much about this person. Um, and, and again, it's much more broad than just media coverage. But once we start to allow ourselves to be as open, to be educated as we wish to educate, a whole new dynamic of conversation pops up. Fantastic. Roxy, you're on the road a lot. You're talking to growers. You're talking to folks in the food chain. If, if we've got listeners who want to get involved or want to follow the work you're doing, where's the best place to go? Yeah, foodintegrity.org is our website. And we also have a consumer-facing website. So if you are getting questions from the science-y to the silly and everything in between, we have a great resource, which is bestfoodfacts.org. And we work with more than 200 university experts to answer all these questions in a way that addresses the facts, but also addresses the vulnerabilities and the skepticisms that consumer bring to these conversations. Fantastic. Listeners, check it out. Roxy, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you so much. Well, I really enjoyed getting to listen to Roxy's presentation, and I really enjoyed talking to her. She is a, uh, she's a sharp thinker and, you know, based right here in Iowa. Absolutely. And we've got lots of sharp thinkers that listen to the podcast daily or weekly or as they choose. Folks, if you've got other interview suggestions for us or things that you'd like us to cover on the podcast. We'll do that investigating for you if you just reach out to us at Ag News Daily on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That is correct. Just search us up or visit us on the web at agnewsdaily.com. Take you to our new home at the Global Ag Network. You can connect with us and you can connect with all of the other podcasts that are on the Global Ag Network. Tons of great agriculturally focused content to get you through your workday or to keep you busy while you're sitting out a rainstorm. Delaney, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go. Let's go.